We last met David Susi a few months ago, and I was just transfixed over Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, and David was kind enough to send me the book, and of course I immediately read it cover to cover, along with Safer Skies, and I've got links to both of them on Raleigh.net if you haven't read them. There's absolute mysteries here, and by the way, you can find out more at whyplanescrash.com. But I believe when we last talked with David, he was planning to take a trip, I believe it was to Orlando over Thanksgiving, so yeah, COVID be damned and get on the plane, so David, did you? I did. How and was I it? Survived. Oh well, yeah, obviously. Uh, if you, if you <laughs> didn't survive, I got a much more interesting show here. Believe me. But, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But uh, all in all, was it pretty uneventful? It, it, it was. You know, I took a lot of precautions, and you, you kind of feel foolish when you do because you see other people that aren't. But um, I, you know, actually, for the most part, people were respectful of your space. The only thing that bothers me is when you, they, they say, well, get up and try to maintain social distancing when you get up and leave the airplane. But no one does, you know, it's like yeah. leaving church and you move everybody all together anyway. So it's kind of a little unnerving at that point. But uh, I, I felt generally safe. Good, good. Well, then, uh, then all's well. Now, I have to tell you, after reading Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, I decided years ago I was done with commercial travel. I'd had a lifetime of it. You know, 1999 came. I said, never getting on another one of these. This book has confirmed everything that I was concerned about and more. Uh, the first <laughs> thing that caused me to really hit control, alternate, delete was when you brought up the concept of high altitude stalling. And, oh, my God, you know, most of us think the real danger points are taking off and landing. But other than that, nothing happens. Uh, how often does high-altitude stalling occur? And not, not terribly often, honestly. Uh, and I think what you might be referring to, too, there's two, two words there. The, uh, when you talk about compressor stall as well, that's something else mm -hmm. that sometimes happens, and the engines uh, decide that they want to quit. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Which is extremely, extremely rare, but that that does happen occasionally. That's usually when you're landing and you you put the engines into full reverse, right. and that's a compressor stall. But but a, a, a power on stall is what I think you're referring to, and that's when the aircraft does stall. Uh, it's but it's not you know people we hear that word stall like the aircraft's going to fall out of the sky, but it's really not that dramatic. You know we did stall testing when I worked for Learjet sure. on the new at the time was the new Lear fifty five that was coming out, and uh, we did stall and and it seems like it just you go up to a stall with power on and you stall and the nose drops and and then basically the 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 air starts going over the top of the wing again and creates lift and and you're back in the air again so it's not like it's going to stall and and completely fall out of the sky it might feel like that for a moment or two when you drop that first 100 feet or so but after that it's uh it does recover well and the airplanes are designed to recover from those types of stalls oh well, well sure and anybody who's taken any private pilot lessons certainly has done some stalls and you normally think about doing them say in a cessna 172 that has a glide ratio but you still don't think <laughs> of them midway over the atlantic in an airbus and so uh <laughs> i assume that that uh reading between some of the lines that that was part of what happened with air france from uh rio mm -hmm. to paris uh now yes. Uh, but you, you, again, until that, I didn't realize this was a thing. So I have not fully recovered from this concept. Uh, 
other than Air France and maybe Malaysia, and we'll talk about Malaysia, to your knowledge, I normally think if it's going to happen midair, it's because you hit something like over the Grand Canyon. But to your knowledge, have there been other fatal mid-flight stalls? Uh, there's there's only one other, and that was a Spain uh, over Spain. And it was a very similar situation because, um, uh, well, not really similar, but similar in speculation, at least with Malaysia Air, uh, in that uh, there was nobody suspected to be alive on the airplane at the time. And uh, because the air, the pressurization system had failed on the flight, and so jets were flying, uh, military jets were flying on either side of the aircraft. And uh, at that point, the they realized someone was on board, and then the aircraft was taken over by a, a non-pilot person, and they ended up stalling that airplane and crashing that airplane. But other than that, I don't know of any that have actually just up and stalled in the middle of a flight. That just doesn't happen. Well, that's, that's comforting. And, of course, when we <laughs> talk about someone overtaking the plane, yes, all, all bets are off, obviously. Right. You can fly right. in the mountains. You can fly into the ground. You know, someone once said, I'm afraid of landing. I said, oh, no, you'll land. It's the severity that's in question. Now, yeah, there you go. <laughs> with, uh, with that in mind, is Malaysia Air the only major commercial crash we know of where we still haven't gotten gotten to the bottom of where is that plane and what happened? Uh, it's the only one I know of, yes, yeah, that we haven't been able to find it. It's the only commercial airplane. Of course, there's been private airplanes. I've investigated yeah. a few of those where people have flown off into the distance and never to be seen again. But um, but it's the only commercial airplane that we still don't have the answers on. Right, right. You know, private, of course, we're still looking for Amelia Earhart. And so, yeah, exactly. Uh, so that, that does happen, sadly. But we, when we think about 239 people on board, and we think about something large made by Boeing with multiple engines, we really don't think of, and we'll never find it again. And so no. uh, with that in mind, reading this, of course, they, uh, they gave up the intense search at the end of 2014. And as you point out so rightfully, this is a very good thing with regard not only to any type of closure emotionally, but particularly financially for the families of those on board. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. for the rest of us, this type of an open question is very unsettling. And I can tell from your writing in the book that you feel the same way. So since 2014, and you wrote the book in 2015, have we picked up any new knowledge? Uh, The only thing that we've picked up are a few pieces and parts that have drifted up uh, up on the shores of uh, areas out in Reunion Island and Madagascar, there's been some pieces that have been confirmed pieces of the aircraft. So really? that gives a few answers, but it certainly is, doesn't paint a picture of what happened. And the ocean is, of course, vast and very deep. How likely mm-hmm. is it we'll ever stumble across the what's left of the actual plane? Uh, I think it's in, uh, highly unlikely that we ever would. Uh, particularly in light of the fact that the most probable places that it would have been have already been investigated and 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 uh, intensely mapped, and there yeah. was nothing found in those areas. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I assume all the psychics have weighed in, you know, the ones we uh, see on YouTube all the time with all the answers, <laughs> and nobody has come forth with, uh, with a clue worth following up since about 2015? Well, I get... A lot of mail from people. And <laughs> bet you, bet you <laughs> do. A lot of people yeah. tell me exactly where it is, and and my emails out there, and people send me information about where they think it is, and pictures of 
of these types of aircraft that are sitting under the water someplace. And none of those, I, I gave up on even following up on those, you know, because unless mm-hmm. there's some incredible threat, and most of these that they say where it's going to be is not anywhere in line with where I know that it would be right. uh, based on the information that we already have. Right, because we have a certain amount of parameters of possibility. We're not going to find mm-hmm. it off the coast of Los Angeles, for instance. So, no. You know, no, th- we're not. Things may move in the water, but not quite that much. Now, yeah. a-, a lot was made about uh, the plane veering off course and turning around, but as you point out, th- there was a very logical reason for this if there was a problem on board because the pilots could have been seeking the closest airport. Well, not just necessarily the closest airport, but more importantly, the airport in which they would go for their ma- major maintenance for the aircraft. So Malay- right. Malaysia Airlines had a major maintenance base that would have been the same heading they would have taken through when they made that turn. So what that tells me is that they were it, they didn't just go back to the closest airport because they uh, in speculation you could say well if they just had a problem that they needed to address they would have just gone to the closest airport landed there tried to fix it and get it on its way but if they had something like a fire or something on board where they knew that there was something really seriously wrong with the aircraft they may have elected to go just slightly further and go to their major maintenance base which would have been the heading that they did take. Right, so the the heading makes a lot of sense. I think the only woo-woo question out there when you look at all the data is that the point that this plane was lost was in a handoff where it would be the perfect point for somebody who wanted to do something nefarious to do it because, of course, you've left one center and you haven't yet checked in with another center, ATC-wise. And so, therefore, timing certainly made some people think that, oh, yeah, this was, uh, this was planned. Have you ruled that yeah. out? No, I think, I think that in, on, one sense, on one point of view, that makes sense. But in that, it would have had to be planned and executed exactly at the right time they would have had to have access to the cockpit or to the uh, uh, E&E bay the electronics and equipment bay down below to take over the aircraft during that very specific time um, the, the the other question has been about suicide and suicide flight and uh, the fact that that occurred at when it did actually reduces the probability of a suicide flight yeah. because of the fact that whenever there's been a suicide flight it's never been during this transition period and that the reason that is is that it would be very suspicious for one pilot to ask the other pilot to leave the cockpit right. during that time because they do have different roles during that time right. so the, the probability that they well first of all there's never been a suicide action with two pilots collaborating together to do so which would be incredibly highly improbable but um so if it was a suicide flight it would be the worst time and the least probable time for that to have happened but in looking at something nefarious, it would have been the plan to do that, but the plan to do that would have had indicators of execution before they got to that point. In other words, there would have been radios accessed, and mm-hmm. they would have had to take over the aircraft uh, to be able to get into the E&E compartment or get into the cockpit before it happened, which there was no indication of that. Just minutes before that, that last turn and before we lost the communication, there was, there was communication from the cockpit with no indication of a stressed voice, um, any, any we've used lie detector equipment to deter, determine if there was any kind of yeah. anything nefarious in the voice of the cockpit, and none of that was recorded. 
Yeah, and I pretty quickly gave up on the idea that it was suicide. Of course, everybody thought of that after the the Egypt air thing that had happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, and you followed this up uh, in detail, there was really no indication of that from from either pilot. And like you say, if it was suicide, the timing was very very off for that. If it was a hijack, this also had many holes in that story, including what the hijackers would have had in the way of sophistication to be able to have uh, pulled it off if they uh, if they so desired. So uh, so yeah. I'm with you there. We're talking about uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. I don't know how much you recall of it, but it uh, it disappeared. And of course, when something like that happens, it makes all the major news channels, and everybody is appropriately shocked because fortunately, this doesn't happen every day. What is different about this flight is we are now over six years later, going on seven years later, and we still have absolutely no idea where that plane is. 888-876-5593 is 8888-RALEIGH if you want to join us. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 is the book. There's a link on Raleigh.net to that and to Safer Skies as well. And uh, a lot of things in that book, too, that I want to bring up. But if you've got specific questions, we'd love to hear them on WGN Radio. We're talking with David Susi. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 and Safer Skies are just two of the books. And, of course, you can go to whyplanescrash.com. But uh, I said I would yield the floor, and I will if you've got questions at 888-876-5593. And uh, there, there are so many aspects of this. And as you pointed out with regard to when you don't find the plane, you've got some big, big question about who who is responsible legally and who pays. And of course, in any situation, there are arguments in terms of was it terrorism, what clause covers it, what insurance covers it, is it is it manufacturing defect, does Boeing have a hit in this, on and on the list goes. And you've got probably as many different partners as you have passengers on a plane. But when the plane never surfaces, what happens then? Well, at that point, you kind of look to the International Civil Aviation Organization rules and what that'll tell you is that the person operating the aircraft, which is Malaysia Airlines, is going to take bear the main part of the responsibility. But it, where it, the search and, the, and trying to find the aircraft, first of all, to rescue, to try to rescue, but the search, and then that happens at the area wherever the aircraft uh, hits the ground or the water or the land, and that's who takes it initially. And right. So that's why uh, eventually Australia took that because it was within their region. And um, but the manufacturer comes into play. Whoever manufactured, whether it's Boeing, whether it's whoever it might be, is in, is part of the team as well. So it, the first thing is just let's see if we can find people first, and then the second thing is let's see if we can um, you know get get pieces of the aircraft, figure out what happened second, and that. But the the idea of finding people and uh, to rescue people if they're still survivors that's always paramount, and oh, everybody yeah. jumps in together and tries to get that going right off the bat. Oh, absolutely, and we'll. Uh, we'll pick it up right there because by the time you're of course talking about who pays what you're already writing off the uh, uh, the crew and passengers but at this point years later that's exactly what we've had to do so many more things involved with this and yes we're going to talk about aviation in general particularly during COVID-19 but as I say the the mystery of Malaysia
Asia Airlines Flight 370 continues, and I'm just uh, I'm just captured by David's book. We'll pick it up right there on WGN Radio. So we're talking to David Susi, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, why it disappeared, why it's only a matter of time before this happens again, and that in some ways is the heart of the matter, and we will get there, as well as safer skies, and again, if you will go to whyplanescrash.com, you'll find out even more. And so uh, here we are with the situation, and I shouldn't admit this because I laughed and laughed at your pain when you were trying to deconstruct the black box to see if you could get it off frequency by mauling it. And so, <laughs> Do you have any permanent injuries from that? It seemed like you might have. Just my pride. Yeah, I'll I'll bet. So you you decided that you would uh, you would conduct several experiments, and the reason being that I guess there was uh, some pickup of uh, which could have been the black box of devices that were emitting frequencies reasonably close, but higher than what you would expect the black box to emit. So you decided you can pick it up right there. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that we could do whatever we had to do to try to see if perhaps twisting it, bending it, breaking it, smashing it, doing something could create those types of frequencies or could create, make it speed up or make a higher higher frequency sound in the in the water. And we were hoping that that would happen, but of course it never did. But uh, it was it was quite a quite an experience trying to trying to maul the black box to make it do what we wanted to do. It's just it's the it's the case that accident investigators get into when you're looking for an answer so badly that you'll do anything to prove that that your your theory is correct, and uh, so that that's the, uh, the the prejudice that you get when you when you have your own ideas and your own theories about things and you want to try to make sure that they're right. But we wanted so badly for that to be what it was so that we could move the search to that direction. But it turned out that it was just a a, a shark a beacon on a shark that had been. That's what we fit, think it was. Yeah. It's just a beacon on a shark that had been put on by the the uh, the oceanographers out in that area. Now we have to give you some credit on this because you did manage to move the frequency of the device. Unfortunately, it was in the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. It did the wrong thing, and it just. It, I think it just slowed down because of the fact that we uh, had introduced new interferences into it that weren't there before. Yeah. So if if you know anything about water, you can't really transmit frequencies through the water. So it's it's a pinging, it's a tapping, and and uh, so since then we've come up with a lot of new ways to to identify different aircraft, so a, a different pattern, a different thing, but basically the frequencies that are still used today for most of these underwater locator beacons that help us locate the black boxes are still pretty um, basic in how they put put their sound out and. Luckily, they, they did increase the battery capacity where most of them now that are flying out of the oceans have a 90-day battery rather than a 30-day because it typically takes about 30 days to even get out there and start searching for these aircraft. Oh, sure. And you had mentioned that is desirable when you were writing the book. At this point, is it mandated or is this voluntary? I'll tell you, Raleigh, I was so impressed. You know, I've, I've never been a big fan of, of big news and, and media and all of that. But I, after this happened, uh, you know, I got on onto CNN as their safety analyst, and I started talking about this 90-day battery thing. And almost immediately, I got calls from a lot of my associates in the aviation industry and said, David, you spent your entire life trying to make differences, trying to get the FAA to mandate things and to make the airlines do what is the right thing to do. And typically, they do. 
but they don't do it very fast. They wait until the FAA comes up and says, this is mandated, you have to do it, which takes a long time. You've got to come up with basically a law that says you have to do it. So, But they said it was fascinating to watch that when I got on CNN and announced to the world that these things were improperly made and that we've been fighting for so long to get 90-day batteries, almost immediately they started putting 90-day batteries on their airplanes. So that was really fascinating to see that the news media actually made a difference in, in safety. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, and I would think that the legal departments, when they heard that, also would be involved because while it is expensive overall when you're talking about the amount of planes and, and the cost, it's very cheap in terms of the result if one does go down. And now you are saying to the world that the airlines are culpable in uh, in not uh, finding and uh, handling the wreckage. So I would, I would think there were entire legal departments when they heard that who said, hey, uh, hold it, guys. <laughs> now the other yeah, what, are, what are we doing here yeah ex- exactly because you you have exposure with things like that when you put it out on major media you just created a situation where where you know they better uh have some financial incentive to do this if not some moral incentive now the other thing you had suggested and you mentioned about the the tapping or the the sequence of of noises is that how about if they emit Morse code rather than a tap every X number of seconds, but something that maybe will identify the flight number. Yeah, and that is possible. That can be done. Um, But again, it costs money. It costs time. It costs engineering. And there's other things that are coming out that are actually a little bit better than that. I just spoke with a gentleman the other day that has a patent now, and he's asking me to participate in it, which I won't do because I'm a neutral party. But um, I, I think his philosophy was fantastic. They have we talk a lot about the military has ejectable uh, black boxes that eject off the airplane if there's an accident. Uh, the challenge with those, of course, is it might eject in the wrong direction or it might, you know, who knows if the aircraft's going to be upside down, right side up, whatever. But the idea is that it would eject and it would float. Uh, this gentleman came up with the idea of having two of these that just break off the airplane, basically. And that makes a lot of sense because they would just be under their own initiative. They're passive. They're not active. They don't have to have a whole new system. They just mount on the outside of the airplane and break. But what's cool about them is they also have locators for GPS in them. So you could get a lot of information from those. When they do break off the aircraft, they would know exactly where they are. So if you had one in the front of the airplane and one in the back of the airplane, you could determine whether the nose was down and the tail was up or the or the the, in the in the, uh, the the lead in the airplane that was on that previous little thing there would be down and those would be up whichever <laughs> um, so you can get a lot of information from those two boxes so there's a lot of great information coming out now and a lot of new ideas as to how to track the aircraft and perhaps even have continuous online monitoring but that gets very difficult when you're that far away people think the world is small but it is not it is very large and to transmit uh, information that far that quickly through satellites and whatever means is expensive and and uh, is not always reliable. Right. Oh, exactly. And anybody who's driven across the country with a cell phone in hand knows how much white space there still exists, even on terra firma. So when you start to add both water and air, uh, you've got you've got some huge issue there. But it's uh, it it's something that does need to be addressed. And I, I can see that it's not addressed because, thank God, this doesn't happen every day. But that uh, that logic, when it does happen, suddenly it's the end of your world if you have a, a 
loved one on that on that flight. Or if you're operating the airline and you've got exposure out the yin yang. And with that in mind, were the financial claims all settled by now, six plus years later? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they are. There, there, there are standards by which there's a convention that uh, sets a standard for what needs to be paid and how soon it needs to be paid. And uh, if there's a certain amount of time that um, I'm not an attorney, so I couldn't tell you that time exactly, but there is a certain amount of time that at which they, if the, uh, if they haven't been found that they have to pay as though they, they were lost. Now so you, there, there's, I was going to say years ago, that was the Geneva convention. Have they updated it since then? Um, yeah, they have. Well, that's it, though. That's the basis of it. But mm-hmm. uh, the United Nations uh, is over the International Civil Aviation Organization. So the ICAO is the civil, basically the aviation branch of the uh, of the UN. And so that is part of it. But then you also have a lot of other organizations that work together uh, to make sure that this is all safe. And that's that's the one thing about the Safer Skies book that my mother always told me because she hates flying she said you, you've written a book i can't read but right. because you're my son i will <laughs> you know but she actually read it and feels safer knowing that there's so many different organizations that are devoted to making sure that uh, the flying is safe and that that's encouraging i i had a brush with the geneva convention when i was young and a loved one who was killed on a crash who was not an american citizen and the the crash uh, uh, originated from uh, bolivia which was not a signatory and the bottom line is i got the ticket price refunded mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. the that was the entire uh, compensation for that and it was explained was to it. me yeah yeah it was explained to me even as a uh, you know pretty much Close to a child that well no they they weren't a signatory to the Geneva Convention and uh, your relative was uh, not an American citizen and so therefore we don't have to pay them anything and they didn't yeah. which uh, yeah. so hopefully that uh, <laughs> Lloyd Ariel Boliviano isn't flying anymore I'm pleased to say but uh, <laughs> that's about all all I can say with that I think the ticket was fifty dollars in any event yeah. I I laughed at safer skies in the introduction because I'm thinking to myself of course. They, they have a fear of flying seminar in Scandinavia, and no one attends. Well, not nobody, but a, a, a lower than expected turnout. And I'm saying, then expected? Are you kidding me? They would have had to fly there. Of course they weren't <laughs> getting on the planes. So what brain trust didn't pick up on that earlier? <laughs> well, th- these are all human beings, you know? And, well, and, uh... And so they just somebody had the idea that that's where they wanted to be, so that's where they did it. And and that's what I always try to emphasize with people. There, uh, you know, when they talk about these conspiracies or whatever in the aviation industry and and why they're trying to save money and that it's all at risk. If you really break it down into who's actually making these decisions, these are decisions that are really made in uh, in good faith. They're trying to, to they're trying to make sure that these are safe. The last thing they want is something to crash, but. That doesn't prevent them from making stupid decisions because they convince themselves they're doing the right things. Yeah, but, you know, it would seem to me that, yes, the biggest problem would be that the folks most afraid are never getting on these planes. And uh, and. <laughs> But you also brought up the statistic of 40% of uh, people roaming terra firma are actually have anxiety about flying. Uh, of that uh, percentage, what percentage are, are, are now like me? They're earthbound. They're not getting on those commercial flights. Oh, it's a lot higher now but with this COVID. Uh, I, I couldn't believe how few people were on that flight with me on the way down to uh, 
to Pensacola is where I actually flew into. Yeah. But um, we did take a Southwest flight of the empty seat in the middle, but I was traveling with my wife, but um, but we, we did have a whole row to ourselves, and um, it, it did feel fairly comfortable. But I, I speak with, I work with Boeing quite a lot and with Airbus and quite a few others on their, you know, safe flight initiatives and their confident traveler, I think is what they call it now. And it's incredible the things that they've done to, you know, to try to make it as safe as they can. Um, But it's, there's always risk. There's always has been risk with flying. And it's a personal decision. It's a personal decision you have to make as to whether you're going to fly or whether you're not. And you have to weigh that against, you know, the happiness that you might get by seeing your loved ones on the other end against now it's, um, it, 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 it seems more real now. Yeah. There's a risk of, risk of, uh, you know, just how long you can live now. Right, right. Catching something, and of course, then you start to weigh it between what will I catch in the air in a four-hour flight versus if I'm going to drive across the country and mm-hmm. hit hotels every night. So we'll pick it up right, yeah. uh, right there. We are talking with David Susi, Safer Skies, an accident investigator on why planes crash and the state of aviation safety, as well as, of course, uh, my fave, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, because it, it will forever remain mysterious. However, however, David just brought up a fascinating fact, and that is uh, never mind uh, how the plane is going to get from point A to point B, but what will happen to you en route uh, vis-a-vis with the current pandemic? How real a concern is that? Certainly many people are being, as you just heard, motivated by it, say not to fly, but is that realistic? Well, we'll find out coming up on WGN Radio. David Susi is the author of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, as well as Safer Skies, and you can check out his website at whyplanescrash.com, and all of his years as an accident investigator makes him an, a, an expert on the subject, and I, I gotta ask, we all hear about, uh, about stupid pilot error, David, and my favorite, of course, are the guys who are landing at the wrong airports and those are legendary. But the one that I still wonder about happened in 1995, good old Northwest, no longer around to defend itself, a big DC-10, heading for Frankfurt, Germany, mistakenly lands in Brussels, Belgium. Okay, now, I, I know they're not that far apart, but, even you know, it's one thing you're heading for Miami International Airport and you wind up in Opelaka, but Brussels? <laughs> what exactly is happening here? Oh man, I, I always think of uh, remember Steve Martin. He would just say, "I forgot." <laughs> and they just say, "I forgot, <laughs> forgot what airport I was landing in." You know, uh, those type of things are extremely rare nowadays because of the fact that the flight following and everything else has gotten so much more sophisticated than when that happened. But, but uh, nonetheless, those things do happen still. They're yeah, still pilots, they're still human beings. You know. Well, oh, and the interesting thing about that, in some cases, like I, I mentioned, uh, good old Opelaka Airport, it was a United 727 bound for uh, MIA, and they had to dismantle that 727 to get it out of there because the, the runways weren't long enough to take off. So, it takes more runway to take off than to land. Does it sure. ever? Yes, exactly. And so, you know, you look at this kind of stuff, and it, it, is, uh, it is half humorous, but the other side of that is in most of these cases, as you scratch below the surface, the pilots were actually in contact with the tower at this point, at the right airport. Now, yeah. nobody seemed they, to notice. They have to confirm that they have the runway in sight. It's yeah. Like, 
Yep, runway in sight. Yeah. Is it the right runway? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. It's it's just uh, it's just mind boggling. But in in the final couple minutes, and maybe I should have uh, gotten to this earlier because this is probably everybody's uh, current fear uh, with regard to COVID. We touched on this last time as well, and you had mentioned just now, and then as well that what the airlines are doing in regard to safety. And you just took a flight. How realistic would it be to worry about you're going to contact? Uh, COVID-19 because you flew commercially? Well, the responsibility lies on yourself. You have to maintain your distance. You have to maintain, put a mask on. You have to also, um, I bought one of these plastic masks to go over my face. Unfortunately, I didn't wear it, but I just didn't feel safe. I didn't feel, excuse me, I didn't feel like there was enough risk where I had to wear a full, you know, plastic mask in front of me. So I did wear my mask that I have, and uh, I will wear a mask that has silver oxide in it. I don't know if that matters or not, but to me it did. So it really comes down to how how are you going to be comfortable with it? I think it's able to be safe in it. I did ask Boeing and, and Airbus as well, how often is the air moving in the aircraft? Yes. How often is it fresh? And they told me two to three minutes. I said, well, what is it, two or three minutes? And uh, so I asked them to send me all the information. They were very, very upfront about it. They sent me all the information about the inlets and the mixing and everything else, and I spent the better part of a week doing the math on that to figure it out. And indeed, they were. It was about it was about uh, seventy-five to eighty seconds is what it was to uh, to uh, remove all the air from one to the other. They won't admit that it's that fast because they want to err on the safe side of safety, of course. But mm. but um, I, I felt like it was that quick that it could move through there, and it goes from the top to the bottom. So the air that you're breathing is going downward uh, at all times when you're on the airplane. So it's it's really felt safe to me. I felt like, with my knowledge of the airplane, I felt safe flying, and I took that risk. And I, I am immuno-challenged. I have some issues that I have to watch out for. And if I get that disease, it's going to be very hard on me, and I knew that. But my granddaughter was down there, my son was down there, and I chose that the weight of the happiness I would feel by seeing them, and I haven't seen them for many months at a time now, that right. I was ready to take that challenge. And if it, if that ended up being my fate, then that's what it was. So you just have to decide for yourself whether it's worth it or not. But but I did feel safe, and I did make it fun, and I didn't take any extraordinary precautions. Like I threatened to my son that I was going to wear one of those beekeeper's masks, yeah. you know, to go down there. But, <laughs> sure. but I didn't do that. Should have no, put one on. I, I felt pretty sick. Should have put one on when you were getting off the plane just to embarrass him in front of everybody else oh, waiting for the passenger. Absolutely, I would have carried that. But it's... Uh, it's very heartening because I think one of the biggest fears and, uh, I guess, uh, unrealized uh, situations is people think that the flight is just recirculating the air continuously. So that alone puts people at ease. And thank you for joining us, David. It's been a very quick hour, and I appreciate it. No, oh, thank you so much for having me, Raleigh, anytime. Thanks. All right. So, David Susi, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 will continue on WGN Radio.